You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Let's get into our time in God's Word. The scripture reading today is going to be from Acts chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen, amen. Yeah, we're in a series where we are looking at what it means to follow Jesus Christ through the lens of the life of Simon Peter. Now, two weeks ago, if you were here, when we did our, our, our fundraiser of sorts for our, for our facilities, for street ministry and for student ministry, happy to give you a very good report on that at the end of our time here. But two weeks ago, if you were here because of that, we pushed pause on the series and sort of picked it up last week as we looked at the backdrop, the backstory to this moment here. Uh, last week on Pentecost Sunday, we looked at Jesus promising that the Holy Spirit whom Christians believe is the third person of God, one God in three persons, that the Holy Spirit would be sent, and here he is when the Holy Spirit is sent, what we just read happened. The church of Jesus overnight in a system and culture designed to kill it is given birth. So let's ask the question that everyone there that day asked, what does this mean? What does it mean? Even the ones who experience this, they don't quite get it. I think it's verse 12 there. It says that when they all, this all happened to them, they were all perplexed. That means they literally did not know what was happening to them. They were at a loss. In this moment, in that moment, they could not grasp what was happening. But we today, with 2,000-ish years of church history, the rearview mirror, I think we can see Maybe a little bit better. So let's ask the same question that all the people there, including Peter, ask about this. What does this mean? 
Or what does Pentecost mean? What does Pentecost mean? Well, at the risk of sounding a bit self-serving as a pastor, Pentecost means this. Pentecost means we follow Jesus into his church. Follow Jesus into his church. You don't sound too excited about that, but that's all right. You're gonna give me a chance. I hope we'll get there by the end. Pentecost, of course, it means more than this as we saw last week, but it sure doesn't mean less. Pentecost means we follow Jesus into his church. So how do we do that? How did Peter do that? How did Peter follow Jesus into his church? Well, Peter experienced, we're gonna look at it, and I think we are too, supposed to experience three things in the church of Jesus that this passage shows us. I think it shows us, we're gonna take a look at how we're supposed to follow Jesus into a new people, marked by a new possibility, held together by a new presence. We follow him into a new people, marked by a new possibility, held together by a new presence. Let's go to number one and take a look at these new kind of people. Who are these new people? We're supposed to follow Jesus into. Well, who does Luke tell you is there that day? He says, there are God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, anybody here from Houston, Texas? You may grow up in Houston, got a few folks. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, if you're from Houston, you might know who the Mad Hatter is. A few of you, a little polite smattering of laughter there. Not the Lewis Carroll character, no, but the radio DJ. Come on, y'all. 97.9 The Box. I see a head nodding. Yeah. The, the Mad Hatter uh, has got this uh, segment he does every day called The Roll Call. It's the roll call. It's the roll call. It's the roll call. It's the roll call. Hey, What's up? Come on, y'all. What's up, y'all? What you got to say? Who's on the Michael Hatter's crew today? Well, that sounds cool, and that may be the way you call. Come on, Robin. What's your set? G? Yeah, all right. Hey, y'all are welcome for that, by the way. Yeah, so the people call in with the Mad Hatter, and they do a little rap to let the Mad Hatter know where they're calling from, right? What part of H-Town they're from, and just to spread the love. Now, (laughs) I do that because Luke is basically doing a first century version here of the Mad Hatter. Luke's about to give a global roll call, literally from east side to west side, and we just read it. And the reason he could do that, and the reason all these people are there was because Pentecost was on the tail end of the high holy days of Judaism and so gathered here in Jerusalem. They're all there in the city. The city would swell to roughly double, triple its size. And as this group is gathered, they're likely here in the temple. What do they hear? It says, each one heard their own language being spoken. So the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples begin speaking in languages unknown to them here. This is most likely not the tongues talked about elsewhere. Okay. In uh, Acts and 1 Corinthians, which Paul the Apostle calls, calls those tongues, mysteries that no one understands. Both are legitimate expressions of the Holy Spirit, but those tongues in Corinthians are not these here. These are different because people did understand them. All these people did not speak the same native language, but they did hear supernaturally, miraculously, a message in their native language by people who did not speak their native language. And what was the message they heard? They said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, the wonders of God, this is a a technical Bible phrase, mostly from the Hebrew scriptures, the Psalms especially. And it means specifically the miraculous 
saving work of God. What God does to save people, they're hearing the message of salvation. They're hearing the gospel here. For the first time, catch this, not in one language to one culture, but it was in all languages meant for all cultures. What does this show us then about the new people of God? Church, all right, three implications of this, especially for the church of Jesus. It shows us, first of all, Number one, there is no one right culture. Preferred, perhaps, all right. More comfortable in, perhaps. No, not right. All cultures, this shows us, are equally loved by God, equally honored by God, equally in need of salvation and redemption. And this is a really big deal, and I'm gonna try to show you why. I'm gonna be a little longer with this first one, quicker with the other two implications. All right, there is a brilliant African professor, uh, just passed away recently, but his name is, uh, was Dr. Laman Sana, and Dr. Sana has written a number of books. I like his writings quite a lot. And he's got a great book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in the book, he counters the objection that Christianity is a destroyer of cultures. Maybe you've heard that one. And as exhibit A, he actually points to this moment we're looking at right here in Pentecost. And he contrasts Pentecost specifically with Islam. He was a former Muslim. Uh, Pentecost with Islam, which basically says that God speaks Arabic. And if you go get a copy of the Quran and you read it and, and you do that, they'll tell you, while it's nice that you're reading it in English, you haven't really read the Quran. Quran. You can't really understand it because you don't read, write, or speak Arabic. And he points out, again, as a Muslim, former Muslim himself, that unlike Christianity, which comes into a culture and can lift it, Islam has a cultural center which it imposes on places as it goes and makes it look similar as it goes because Islam has a language and language is the carrier of culture. But Christianity, he, he notes, is utterly different because of Pentecost. There is no one Christian language. There's no one holy culture, which is why Christianity can come into and flourish in such diverse places as China, Brazil, Nigeria, Philippines, and yes, even these United States. Because when Christianity comes into a culture, here's what it does. Two things. First, it challenges every culture to a certain degree, does it not? In Western Christianity, for example, it challenges the truthlessness we assert. Like there's no such thing as truth. You do you. What's good and right is right for you. You know, it's only about your lived experience and while your own story and experience are important. No, no. Christianity says there is an absolute truth Above all the lowercase t truths, there is one way to God. His name is Jesus. And Christianity challenges the selfishness we tend to embrace in the West. It says life is best lived when it's not all about you, no matter how many people tell you otherwise. And on the other side of the world, Sana points out that tribalistic cultures, the gospel tells the story of a man dying for his enemies. That's extremely challenging to hear tribalistic cultures. So Christianity first challenges every culture and yet on the other hand, Christianity honors every culture in a way no other system of thought can or does. But if you're here, you're saying, Morgan, I'm like a secular person. You're watching online today. I'm a secular person, you know, skeptical atheist type. You may be saying, well, no, no, no. Secularism honors every culture. Look, secular culture celebrates diversity. But Laman Sana says, a little, but really, no, in the end. And let me give you the example he gives because I think it's true. He says that secularism 
for example, destroys the heart of what it means to be African. What does it mean to be African? We got a number of Africans in here. Love you, so glad you're here. They know. To be African means you have at the heart of your worldview a world full of spirits, supernatural powers, angels, demons, uh, cosmological supernatural warfare are all at the heart of the African perspective. So what does secular liberal culture do to the African worldview? It says, everything at the very heart of you is wrong. No such thing as a supernatural. No such thing as angels, demons, God. There's no such thing as a supernatural world. So come on into our diversity celebrations. We'll let you wear your clothes. You can bring your food, but leave the heart of what it means to be you at the door. Take what's on the outside, leave what's inside at home. I mean, talk about condescending, right? But he says this, and I've used this quote before, so if you're familiar with it, your patience is appreciated. He concludes like this, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. There is no one right, holy Christian culture because of Pentecost. Oh, Christianity honors every culture and yet renews it and challenges at the same time. That's the first implication. I'll be quicker on the second too. Second implication of this about his new people. God is intentionally cultivating diversity in his church. I mean, think about it. Why did he wait till now, this moment, Acts 2, to send the Holy Spirit? It's because God wanted to create from the jump an intentionally global, beautifully diverse, ethnically diverse church. Pentecost means God was diverse on purpose. And third, third is the honoring of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes multi-ethnic church possible. And this one is just a sociological fact. Research it for yourself. Churches that preach about the Holy Spirit, like we did last week, talking about a bit today, honor the Holy Spirit in their midst are by far the most diverse group of Christian churches. Charismatic Christianity is, besides the fastest growing group of any kind of people in the world today, also the kind of church where you'll tend to find more ethnic diversity. All right, that's number one. To follow Jesus, like Peter's doing here, is to follow him into a new kind of people, people from all different cultures, equally loved, equally honored, equally fallen, equally able to be redeemed. There's a new people God is forming right here. But what's amazing about this new kind of people right here, which Peter, something else Peter's also about to taste, is that there's something incredible happening among them. That's number two. These new people are also marked by a new possibility. And if you don't get anything else today, I hope you'll see this. What is this new possibility? Well, let's take a look at some of the language at a macro, macro level used here in the narrative. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Verse three, tongues of fire on each of them. Verse four, all of them filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse five, every nation under heaven. Verse six, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together. You'll notice the pattern. The language here, here it is. The language here is the language of unity. Unity. They're all together, experienced something all together. A crowd came together. The possibility, therefore, being held out here, no matter how impossible it might seem, is the possibility of unity in the church of Jesus. 
the possibility of unity in the church of Jesus. And now some of you are thinking, Morgan, you've gone too far. <laughs> then you're laughing. First service laugh. That's okay. All the miracle stuff last week, all that supernatural stuff, that was hard enough for me to swallow, Morgan, but somehow I'm back. But this, unity, it's a bridge too far. Right? Morgan, you're actually telling me with 2020 and the not-so-distant past that it's possible for us just to what? Hug it out? <laughs> Hold hands? Sing a song? It's all going to be okay? First of all, you may be saying, Morgan, I'm not hugging anybody. And second, hugging, trying to hug that kind of person, the person I got in my mind right now, looks like that, voted like that. For me, Morgan, that's like trying to hug a porcupine. It would be literally painful for me, and I'm not going to do it. All right. Speaking of porcupines, since you all brought them up, <laughs> let's talk about them for a minute. Have you ever seen a porcupine? The North American common porcupine is actually a rodent. Member of the rodent family it has around 30,000 quills attached to its body. Each quill can be driven into an enemy and the enemy's body heat causes that microscopic barb to inflate, to expand, to become more firmly embedded in the enemy's skin. The wounds can fester, sometimes be fatal. Because of this, the porcupine, as you might imagine, is not regarded as one of the animal kingdom's most beloved creatures. The porcupine's Latin name literally means irritable back. I thought about this, and this is true. You know, like books, movies, films, etc. that celebrates animals of all kinds. No one celebrates porcupines. Dogs, old yeller, I could go on, right? I mean, pigs have at least babe. Whales, on flipper, right? Dolphins. Skunks, Peppy Le Pew. But man, there's no like plushie we're handing out an MKIS today about with the porcupine, right? Why? Because as a general rule, porcupines have two basic methods for handling relationships. Attack and withdraw. Attack and withdraw, you know, sort of like what we do on social media these days. But I digress. Wolves, yeah. Wolves run in packs, you know, sheep are in flocks, elephants in herds. There's no name for a group of porcupines. Why? Because they don't exist. But porcupines don't always want to be alone. They don't. In late autumn, young porcupines' thoughts turn to love. Love turns out to be risky business when you're a porcupine because the females, it's true, are open to dinner and a movie one time a year. Window of opportunity, therefore, in the animal kingdom closes quickly and a female porcupine's no is the most widely respected turndown in all the animal kingdom. Gotta respect it. So this then is the porcupine's dilemma. How do you get close without getting hurt? How do you get close without getting hurt? That's our dilemma too, isn't it? Because unlike the, because like the porcupine, that is like the porcupine, we have two primary ways we tend to handle relationships, especially right now. Attack and withdraw. Attack and withdraw. The, old, the, the word in the Old Testament for the word attack is the word makah. It's the war we wage on others when we feel like we're justified. When someone does something wrong to us, we nakah. They owe us. We're going to get that thing back, make sure they get what they deserve. We attack. We nakah. Or we withdraw. Hebrew word here is the word hafrada. It means we separate from, we pull back, attack, withdraw, the ka, hafrada. Why do people, actually, let's just narrow our frame for a minute. Why do so many, though not all, 
so many Christians attack others? Why, many, why do many times Christians literally wish evil upon their enemies, though we've been instructed to love them? Why do so many Christians wish for the demise, maybe the literal deaths, I've heard this, of their political opponents, theological opponents, spiritual opponents? They curse those wearing masks or not or this or that. Why do Christians stick out their quills so often? Let me give you a quote here. It's a little bit challenging, so you can grip your seat or hold the hand of the person next to you. And if it's a new person, well, then you just made a friend at least. All right, if not more. This is from Richard Lovelace, uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary. He said, those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, means church patterns, and their culture as means of self-recommendation. Many people tend to use their, their race, ethnicity, uh, political party, church as the way they feel good about themselves. The culture is put on as though it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate, their, uh, hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. In other words, he's saying apart from a transforming work of the Holy Spirit, our tendency is to stick out our quills, right? We barb those uh, who watch that channel. We barb those who watch that other news channel. The world's not better. We attack, withdraw, it gets worse, and we get stuck. How do then those who come bearing quills make it? Well, here's what those with the literal quills have figured out to do to make sure another generation comes along because that's what all of this is kind of all about, isn't it? To make sure another generation comes along. And here's what happens. In an image you could not make up, the male and female porcupines, they start just by learning to share space with one another. It's to share space. And as they inhabit the same space over time, they begin to learn how to trust one another. Then they stand up on their hind legs they pull in their quills, they touch paws, and they literally begin to dance. It's called the dance of the porcupines, yeah. How do we work, local church, toward the possibility of unity within God's intentional diversity? One way, it's the way of the porcupine. We inhabit the same space. We learn to trust. We pull in our quills, and we dance. I want to tell you, I believe this is possible. And in this way then, Pentecost is a bright light for the church when all other cultural lights have gone out. Number one, as Peter finds here, we're a new people, diverse people on purpose. And number two though, there's a new possibility, that of unity within these new people. What do we need? What did they need then to make it all happen? Hold it all together. It's number three. They need, we need a new kind of presence. 
There's something that's happening within, among these people of God, new people of God, that enables them to pull in their quills, go paw to paw and dance, but the people around them, they don't even know how to process it. Look at verse 13, it says, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And don't you know, there was an eyewitness who caught that. There's no way you get that detail otherwise. Well, why would someone say this? Well, what happens when someone gets drunk? You know, people, not you, but we know, sorry. People, when they drink, their inhibitions get lowered, right? They tend to be more honest, more emotional, more relaxed around other people than they normally would. And in many cases, that's actually a good thing. Inhibitions are good. They keep you from doing stupid stuff. But here's the thing about alcohol. It's only a masking agent of sorts. It only makes you feel relaxed because it's tricking you momentarily. It's a depressant. Not that it makes you sad. It just depresses a part of your brain, pushes it down. You literally become dumber when you drink too much. And that's why people tend to make really bad decisions. And so, yes, on the surface, people under the influence of the Holy Spirit can look like they've had too much to drink. Why? Because their tendency towards self-preservation is lowered. Uh, their tendency towards the selfish inhibitions are lowered. They tend to forget about the self. They tend to think more about others. They're more honest. They're more vulnerable, even though it costs them. And so, yeah, on the surface, it looks like they're drunk. But here's the difference. Unlike uh, alcohol, whose effects, which effects are temporary, with the Holy Spirit, the effect is supposed to be, can be, should be permanent because you're not worldly drunk. You're not even like Beyonce drunk, as in drunk in love. Sorry. What Acts 2 shows us is that Christians are to be drunk, not in love, but with love. You know what my favorite moment here in church is? You're saying, no, but I'm guessing you're about to tell me. All right, so. Got a lot of favorite moments. I love, of course, seeing all of you. I love it when we touch God's heart and worship, like I believe we did today. Hearing the updates, hearing the stories, hearing about the incredible giving that you're about to hear at the end of the service today. I love hearing about your week, all the sacrifice you make to make this community great. But my favorite moment is when my children, I've got four of them, any of them come up to me after whatever service they're in or they attend. And usually I haven't seen them yet because I'm up and gone before they get up. They come up to me and maybe, especially my daughter, because she's the only one I can still pick up anymore. All my boys are too big, but I love it when they come up to me and they say, I love you, daddy, no matter if they're interrupting me when I'm talking to you. Now, let me say this. If I'm talking to you, I want you to know, you are so important to me. <laughs> but guess what? If they greet me, my child, I'm going to greet them back and say hello. And tell them I love them back. And I'm probably going to pick up my daughter and we are going to hug and tell each other we love each other. And then I'm going to put her down. She's probably going to go get another, like her third cup of chai tea and maybe run around with her friends here. Now I tell you all that to ask you this question. Before I picked her up and expressed my love for her, was she any more or less my daughter? Come on. Was she more my daughter in my arms or less? Of course, neither. Her status as my daughter is unchanged no matter where she is here and around the world. But that moment when I hold her and she experiences again in her heart what she knows or has heard in her head, that moment changes her. It fills her with something she wasn't experiencing 
experiencing a moment before, right? Her father's love. And so both, that's why Jesus, both Jesus Christ and the apostle Paul, that's why they say that, in part, is what the Holy Spirit's role is in our lives. It makes the experience of the father's love real in our hearts. It makes us cry out, oh, Abba, oh, Daddy, oh, Father, oh, Heavenly Father, I love you. I can feel your love. I know you love me beyond my performance or my appearance, which also means you love all of them like that too. You love me, God, deeply, truly. I can feel it perfectly with a forever kind of daddy love, which also means you love all of them like that too. And when you feel perfectly loved, what do you tend to do? Come on, you drop your inhibitions, right? Become vulnerable, passionate, inhibitions go away. Why? Because you're filled with love. Now you can give away anything. And that's why you see this first Christian community doing this the way they do. Look at the end of chapter two. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They look drunk. Inhibitions toward self-preservation. Gone. Greed. Gone. Individualism. Eliminated. They're pulling in their quills. And they're dancing. Let me ask you this. What law are they obeying here? None. What Old Testament commandment do they point to? There isn't one. No external compulsion. It's all coming from inside. See if the presence of the Holy Spirit is in your life. Like them, you're just gonna be a giver. You are. You literally can't help it. And if like them, if giving away a percentage, maybe a substantial percentage of your income, if that sounds crazy to you, if you can't bring yourself to do it, maybe it's because you haven't tasted, experienced love. And if the presence of the Holy Spirit is in your life, being around Christians, even not like you, that's gonna be a priority in your life. You're gonna put your time into building Christian community. You're not just gonna drop in every once in a while to meet your psychological or social needs or because you feel guilty. No, you'll do it for the same reason they did, because of glad and sincere hearts. Because that's what love does, right? Love compels us to reach out, move out from ourselves compels us to take risks and isn't that what Jesus has done for us come on he did it for you didn't didn't he move out from his place of safety out of his home in heaven and didn't he use all his power his resources for good didn't he give it all away he lowered his inhibitions to the point of death on a cross and then was raised so that this beautiful moment of Pentecost could happen church. We are a new, diverse, on-purpose people with the possibility of unity held together by divine love. And Jesus Christ calls you and me to follow him into that. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.